You're listening to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lubiton. This week in the show, a super talented fiddler and banjo picker who isn't afraid to speak her mind through her gorgeously fractious folk songs, Rachel Bayman. This is my first episode recorded in Nashville, and I was super glad to meet up with Rachel at a friend's house on an icy morning before she headed back on the road. Like me, Rachel comes from Chicago originally. Instead of playing competitive sports like the rest of us kids, Rachel became an Illinois State fiddling champion as a teenager, so you know she has mad chops. It was that fiddle playing, cutting through the night, that first drew me to Rachel. I discovered her through Ten String Symphony, her ridiculously awesome side project with Christian Settlemeyer. Who starts a band with two fiddles? How does that even work? But it does. It was magical. And once again, I have to credit Bluegrass Situation founder Amy Rittenauer for telling me about these guys. And this is why you take a chance and you listen to a friend who knows what they're talking about and you go out on a Tuesday when everyone is sitting at home in their pajamas and you listen to a band you've never heard of. And that night, hearing Rachel and her fiddle for the first time, it was the kind of show where you didn't want to breathe while you were watching. You wanted to suck in each note and hear each crunch and wail of the strings and track each rhyme until each story is over. At the end of the episode, you'll hear her tune Thanksgiving, not about stuffing yourself at that holiday dinner with cranberry sauce and turkey, but about the standoff at the Dakota Access Pipeline. There's a mournfulness and a respect in her songs that really comes through every time she sings. And that type of wisdom and insight from such a young age, it's got to come from somewhere. And so, my fellow listeners, that's why we debuted our new segment on the show, Call Mom. That's right, we didn't phone a friend, we called up our moms. Because us roving troubadours forget to call our biggest fans when we travel so much, so we got them on the line to set us straight and tell folks just where we came from. But enough of all that, let's hear from the lady herself, our very first Nashville episode with Rachel Bayman. When I smoke, I want to get high, well that's a way to pass the time in tracking where where are we right now um we are in deep deep inglewood we're close to madison where i live but we're over briley so therefore is this technically east nashville it is yeah it's it's inglewood is like a piece of east nashville so this is the first recording on this show in uh nashville and uh there's so many assassins in this town playing ridiculous music that it feels very intimidating to play here for me. I like that you refer to them as assassins. That's kind of like how New York people refer to musicians as cats. But LA people refer to them as assassins. Or I guess Del McCurry would also say cats. And Nashvillians refer to them as uh, the pizza delivery person. Uh, Oh. Uh, elaborate on that. Oh, there's just a joke in Nashville that if you go to get gas or order pizza, whoever is like helping you is going to be like a super amazing musician of some sort. And you've you've worked crazy odd jobs through your. I through have your times. many many a weird. What odd is the jobs? best and worst regular job that you've had? Um, the best job I had was um, I was a research assistant for 
a sociology professor at Vanderbilt. And my job was to um, read through novels written around the turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s, and make reports about them. So that was a great job because I literally got paid to read books. The worst job was probably selling merchandise at the end of the Rolling Stones exhibit, which doesn't sound that bad, but they played um, one song on repeat. Oh, no. The entire... What? Why? Time, because we were part of an exhibit. So people would walk through the exhibit, and then the last room was the... um, was the... uh, merch you know kind of area and so the last exhibit room was just playing one song on like a hologram and um people would walk through but we were just stationary how quickly did you feel like you would lose your mind within the first day but there was quite i mean that was also not i mean it was the worst in in the like i was in like a basement dungeon listening to the same song over and over for several hours every day but it wasn't there was a lot of downtime so um you know, it wasn't like the hardest job. My first job was at the very first Jamba Juice in the Chicago Ooh, area. We're both from Chicago. Yes. And uh, they opened it up. It was super exciting. I like got a job. I was like 17. And they had a corporate playlist mm. that seemed like, oh, it was fun, upbeat, mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. like pop rock music. But then I realized like three, four weeks in that like it's the same like 17 songs yeah that's a little rough that's and little i rough. and i would i started getting like almost like like twitchy like like twitching yes. you know sort of things in my eyes when i would like hear like a tom jones song come on i was like i can't i can't, I can't, this I can't do this anymore i don't know how you are but for me i cannot tune out music if there's music no. playing i'm listening to it so like i was basically um analyzing the same song like over and over. Like some people, you know, listen to music when they're reading or studying. I cannot Or to go that. to sleep. I, I can't understand that. Like I'll be, you sleep I'll be with wide them? awake. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. What did you, uh, what was the first music you remember listening to when you were a kid? Well, let me think. We did a lot of um, like Richard Schindel, um, kind of super folky. I, I called it singing ship songs because my parents were big folkies and they listen to a lot of Canadian like Stan Rogers kind of vibe songs um did you go to the old town school folk music a lot not really because it's kind of on the other side of the city but um which part I did, of Chicago are you from I'm from the west side I'm from Oak Park oh okay yeah I, I did go there a few times I remember going to like a workshop with Raina Gellert I went there for some shows like when I got a little bit older and I was more independent but um we we did have sort of a music community in my little neighborhood, so there was that. But my parents were, we lived on the East Coast until I was four, and so they were really into, um, they went to Folk Project and um, the Falcon Ridge Folk Festival and, and things like that. So Bach Was that upstate and, New York? Uh, yeah. Bach, Mir, and Trickett, and um, yeah, I don't know, super folky. Things like that. <laughs> Sounds like your parents were really conservative Republicans. Um, yeah, definitely. I think uh, actually they would have been the most disappointed in me had I become a conservative Republican. That would be the worst thing I think 
for my dad. <laughs> that his child. That his child. You described do. him as a radical economist. What does that mean? Um, well, I think you're familiar probably with the doctrine of Bernie Sanders. When when Bernie um, kind of came out as this um, political figure and everyone was sort of starting to talk about his radical ideas, those kind of ideas about democratic socialism and um, basically his entire platform is what I have been hearing about around the dinner table for my entire life. So I was very familiar. Um, you know, I'd heard my dad talk about Bernie before and I didn't pay too much attention until he became such a public figure but I was completely familiar with all of his ideas and it was kind of fun for me because I did kind of grow up thinking that my dad was like super weird <laughs> and all of a sudden I was like my dad's cool he's been cool way before it was cool you know so sometimes our parents I think are so unhip that they're actually way more hip than it's people totally realize. it's like when you have clothes and you get them in your like your teenage years and then you keep them for so long that they come back in style it's kind of like that i mean you you're definitely uh i think on the forefront of the folk music tradition that is more in the protest and uh social commentary section of the shelf where we can really like i think listen to your stuff and and be inspired to actually do something you know which is really Thanks. cool and i think um, especially the, the song Tent City off the new Thanksgiving mm. EP that you put out is very um, sort of pointed about the disparity between sort of this rich uh, tech sector moving into a town mm. like Nashville yeah. when so much poverty and homelessness is happening all around it and the gap between the haves and haves not have yeah. keep it keeps growing and we don't really say anything about it you know yeah I mean I think for me that these kind of um, inequalities became really apparent I mean I always knew I always knew that they existed but um, I recently uh, my husband and I bought a house and going through that process of understanding what you need to do and what you need to have to buy a house and which is for a lot of people kind of the main path to financial security because a lot of us can't put away money each month to invest or you know do these things so paying your mortgage is the way that you kind of invest or save money and um you know I'm a musician married to a musician so our income it's huge. Yeah, it's tiny. And, you know, my husband is from New Zealand. His income didn't even count, you know, when we were trying uh -huh. to buy a house. And I was looking at all the ways that people can do this. And to me, I, I was just thinking, you know, I'm going to need to lean so much on the fact that I have parents with, you know, good jobs that can co-sign with me. If I didn't have that, this would be pretty much impossible for me because even if I could sort of not expense anything on my taxes and get my income high enough, mm -hmm. then I'm going to be paying so much in healthcare because my tax, you know, bracket is related to how much I have to pay in the health exchange and, you know, who knows how long that will last. But anyway, it just became so glaringly obvious to me why it's so hard for people to have mobility when it comes to you know, moving from a, um, like a very lower class upbringing to a middle class, like that's 
very, very difficult. You really need to lean on people you know to help you to go to college, to, you know, get that first house, like all of these kind of things and, and just the unfairness of it. And then George, my husband said to me the other day, which I hadn't even thought about, like, do you realize how much more we're going to spend on this house than someone who had the money to just buy it? Like the fact that you have a mortgage, the amount that you're paying in interest, mm. that house costs a poor person two and a half times as much mm. as it costs somebody who can just buy it, you know, outright. And I was like, wow, I never actually even thought of it that way. But yeah, well, the, the, the economic caste system is so entrenched yeah. without us knowing it, because it's like if we grow up in a middle class sort of household, yeah. you sort of expect like, well, I'll be in this sort I'll of general... Fine. Yeah sort of world for the rest of my life and then you choose to be a musician and yeah. you start to realize like if I didn't have exactly this sort of safety net of my yeah. parents and my grandparents who yeah. really worked hard what would I be doing yeah you know like would this be possible and it's interesting that you say they really worked hard because it's like well did they work any harder or did they just also have that safety net you know what I mean and I think there is there was this time in America where that work hard mentality was accurate. I mean, I know that my grandparents on my dad's side were first, well, I guess his grandparents were first generation immigrants. That's from where? From somewhere in Eastern Europe. I want to say Poland. And they started a hardware store in New York, like your typical, mm -hmm. you know, up from the bootstraps yeah. thing. But now I don't think that you know, I've worked any harder than someone else who can't afford to buy a house because, you know, like I just think that that is a, myth that we're so used to that right. we're, we just accepted it as like, oh, well, you know, surely you have that because X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no, you have that because you had parents that had money to yeah. help you out with, like in whatever way, whether that be co-signing or, you know, whatever. So Yeah. I think it's, I always joke that a lot of times the living your dream lifestyle, mm -hmm. you know, that we, we, I guess, could consider yeah. making music and, and, and touring and, you know, you're trying to, you know, evolve a, an art, you know, yeah. but also most people would never even think of trying to do this yeah. as their life. But it's partially because of supportive, encouraging families mm -hmm. that even get this thought in our head that we could go and sing songs every night yeah. and survive, you know? Yeah. And my folks are also kind of definitely artistic, uh, obsessed people, yeah. you know, movie people, music people. Um, and I always joke that if I actually had a desk job, I think they would actually be more disappointed, you okay. know? They'd be like, yeah. well, that's what you need to do, I guess, you know? Yeah, that's funny. Whereas this is sort of like, yeah, I can come to their shows yeah, and, uh, like, I mean, and uh, I can sort of tell people, yeah. like, what he's doing. But then the reality hits of, like, me in L.A. never going to be able to buy a house, yeah. really, you know? And eventually, you, you want to start a family or something, yeah. and you're like, how is this going to work, Yeah, you know? Yeah, it definitely gets... I think it, there's like various steps along the way where, you know, when you're first starting out, you have that moment. How is this going to work? How am I ever going to pay my bills this way? And then maybe you pass that threshold and then you have the next um, step of like, well, how am I going to ever, you know, have a family or do X, Y, and Z that I dreamed about or not be stressed about, you know, if the car breaks down, you know, in eventually. 
So yeah, I think there's those various steps and then people kind of make their own choices about how to figure that out along the way. When did you start writing your own songs? I think I started in college. Um, I'm trying to remember. I guess I did a little bit of writing in high school, but I would never took it too seriously. I was more focused on being an instrumentalist um, at that time. And yeah, I think it was in college and I think it was sort of a lot to do with moving here to Nashville and being around so many people that are in love with songs. I, this is one of the things I love so much about Nashville is that everyone is so song obsessed and it's an art form that's really respected and kind of um, coveted, you know, because so many people, especially in the recent past, moved here to kind of write the hit songs, try to write that one great song and, and make it big, which I feel like is less of a thing now, but still definitely exists. But just being around that song culture and um, singing more and then kind of starting the group with Christian when we were starting 10 string symphony, I kind of had a platform where we needed original material. And, um, so yeah, there was a combination of, yeah, I found out about you through 10 string symphony with Christian Settlemeyer, uh, which is, if you haven't heard it, folks, (laughs) among the most pristine (laughs) acoustic music and harmonies you can ever imagine. Um, two fiddles going at the same time and, and then singing, it's kind of a rare, yeah, vehicle for a band. It's rare for a reason because it's really weird. And it's very <laughs> difficult. But I have to say, Zach, that you were a huge, you actually were a big part of Ten String Symphony kind of getting off the ground because when we did our very first tour out west, you wrote that review for us, show review, and it was such a nice and amazing and well written review. And it was kind of the first press that we ever got. Really? Well, I really. Was that probably like 10 years ago? It was a long time ago. And, um, and uh, I remember we, you know, the first tour is always like pretty rough. And um, that was a, not a very well attended show that you were at. And we um, were kind of, we had got, I don't know, I think we were partying a lot on that tour because it was kind of our first time out west. <laughs> and we were like, weed is legal. Wow. Like it was just, we were big idiots. And uh, Christian left his phone in a cab and <laughs> like it was just a disaster. But anyway, we, we're at this coffee shop and that review came up and I just remember feeling so incredibly happy and inspired and it actually got us a few gigs, you know, and just kind of helped us take ourselves seriously. So thanks for, you know, doing that. Well, I think, I think there's a lot of music that is not, um, appreciated by a larger audience Mm. that, um, I mean, this is part of the reason why I'm doing this damn show. It's like, these artists like you, who I'm like, listen to this person mm. now. Like, <laughs> for good, Do good God, let's go, you know? Because I think we're all sort of used to this confirmation bias. Like, well, if everyone listens to Gillian Welch, like, I'll only listen to Gillian Welch if I want sort of right. harmony folk or something, you know? Right. And Instead I'm like, what about like out, a young, is... up and coming Gillian Welch? Ooh. She could be sitting right here in front of us. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. No, but I'm saying is that like we have to keep discovering music, and a lot of people, there's been scientific studies, stop actually actively discovering music after age 25. Mm, that they, is, they stop. That makes so much sense, and also it's insane. But that total, you're totally right. A lot of people just get, they just stop. They listen to the same things. I still. stop a lot of times. I'm like, well, you know, 
I don't need more music. I have so much music oh, that I love. But like, but then I, I realized like, I need more music because you know, I like I I feel like I digest it like food. Like I fall in love with an album and I listen to it like four hundred times and then I'm like, all right, I've eaten that. Not that I won't ever listen to it again, but it's like who's someone that we should know that we may not know. Well, there's an amazing um, songwriter out of Melbourne named Dan Parsons, hmm. and a lot of people have not heard of him in the states. Um, but he's amazing. He's got kind of a James Taylor-esque voice. Mm. Um, really great songwriting, amazing musician. And yeah, definitely check him out. I think my mom is uh, waiting on our... So we're going to do a segment <laughs> on this show that I've been thinking about for many weeks. Um, it's called Phone Mom. Because <laughs> every musician who tours really should call their mom a little bit more. You know what? You are so right about that. I really should call my mom more often. So we're going to do it right now. Because uh, What's your mom's name? My mom's name is Michelle. And my mom... Um, Where is if, she at right now? She's at work. I think she's in Chicago. And she hosts many musicians. If you didn't live in... If you weren't from Chicago, you probably would have stayed with her because she hosts a lot of bands on the road. And she says... She's really sweet. She's like, well, I just think about all the people you stayed with. And, you know, it's just my way of paying it forward. <laughs> God bless moms who take in bands. Right? Okay, here we go. She's very nervous for her appearance. Hello. Hi, Mom. This is Rachel and Zach. Hello. You're on the show on the road. Welcome to the show. Hi there. <laughs> so much. Thanks for being a guest with us. No worries. And uh, is it really cold in Chicago right now? Oh my gosh, it is so cold. It was one below zero this oh. morning when I got up. Oh. Where, it's March. Where do you work? Um, I work at a social service agency. We work with adults with developmental disabilities. God's work, doing God's work. <laughs> let's let's get into uh, no, not monetarily, but otherwise. <laughs> we know a little bit about that. Let's yeah, get in. Yeah, let's, you do. let's get into the embarrassing stories department. Oh, so, your daughter becomes the Illinois state fiddle champion as a teenager. Did she let it go to her head when she won? No, she didn't. She was happy. Um, you know, there there were many many contests and. Um, you know, there's, they're really great because they're, uh, they're kind of social, social situations. There's, there's a lot of kids. You see the same kids every year. And so we were thrilled. She was very happy, but nothing embarrassing there. How disappointed would you have been if she quit playing the fiddle and instead became a chairman of the young Republican party in oh. Chicago? I think you would have been more supportive, though, than Dad. You probably would have been like, honey, if it's really what you want to do. Well, I wouldn't have disowned you. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly unlike your father. Yes, that probably would have happened. Yeah. Do you, uh, are you very opinionated about her songs like my mom is, where you want to, you know, is it important to you that she listens to your opinion 
about the songs or you support her no matter what. Because my mom, I think, is like, I really like your soft love songs. <laughs> Why aren't there more of those? <laughs> you know, um, I, in general, I love all of Rachel's songs. Um, you know, I have favorites and... Um, I think I might say that you did um, give me you did give me a, a recent criticism about one of my songs because you well, didn't. It wasn't a criticism; it was a question. It, it, <laughs> sometimes I get a, you know I want to be really clear on the lyrics, so if I might question something, but she didn't um, like um, one of my lyrics. She thought didn't make sense, and you know it was song? it was fair. It was a little bit of a vague <laughs> lyric, so we had to have a little discussion about it. What was the song? The song is called. Um, in the space of a day and there's yes. sort of this verse which is sort of a metaphorical image of someone being in a portrait and then leaving the family portrait you know what I mean mm. yeah. but the wording yeah. is a little confusing as it happens sometimes to fit you know rhythm and rhyme scheme well, my yeah. mom my mom has like this very airy sort of uh lovebird kind of vibe where she gotcha. seems like she's the super positive person, but then her favorite song is actually the song about an old man escaping a hospital so he could commit suicide with his friends. Um, <laughs> the darker one. She yeah, likes like, the dark songs. So I always introduced that song. I was like, you know, my, my you know, if you're a mom, sometimes you're you like, love this <laughs> you like assisted suicide songs. You know, that's my mom loves songs in minor keys. Mm. I do. Yeah. I do. She's always like, true. I, that's I love true. that one I, song, and I'm I like think predictable. Rachel's <laughs> songs are are very brave. I mean, I I have strong opinions about things, but I'm I'm not, not very likely to rock the boat on things. So I'm just you know I love that she's brave enough to do that. Do you remember the first music that she was responding to as a child? <laughs> In the womb. <laughs> uh, Willoughby, Wallaby. <laughs> Raffi. Dude, Raffi's the man. Uh, no, I, we, did, we did a lot of music stuff when the kids were growing up. We went to, she's probably said that we've gone to folk, we went to folk festivals and, and uh, workshops and stuff. So, and there was a lot of music playing in the car all the time. And I know she used to complain that we listened to sinking ship songs too much. Mm-hmm. Well, I also <laughs> complained. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I also complained because I discovered on my own Simon and Garfunkel and a few and Cat Stevens and some really amazing artists, which they had records of in our house. We did. But holding it back. they never played them for me. And I was we like, had, Mom, yeah, this is very kind of, good music. <laughs> I guess we had kind of gone through that and we're on to other things mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, yeah, very, uh, uh, that was a big lacking piece in Rachel's music education. I, I do feel bad about that. <laughs> that was one of my favorite scenes in the movie Almost Famous when the young kid brings back like a Simon and Garfunkel album and his mom... Francis McDormand thinks it's like super scandalous. Like, oh, like that music at the time was really? like, I've, I've not like, seen this oh movie. my God, how could you listen to this? That's hilarious. Which is now what, like our parents is, would be like, oh, what please is listen scandalous to this. on Simon and Garfunkel? I can't even well, imagine. At the time, maybe it was like more, it was not like Bing Crosby or something, you know? Yeah. But it's so, it's so wholesome. No, I mean, it seems like it is now. The first mm-hmm. album you owned was Simon and Garfunkel. Was Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits. And it was the only album I owned at the time. And so I played it over and over and over. And like mother, like daughter. Crazy. 
What is the thing you worry about most for Rachel on the road? As a oh, mom. I don't worry about Rachel on the road. Come on. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I, I know it's a, it's a very tough, brutal schedule traveling all the time. And I guess I, I worry that it'll wear her out. But she's a strong woman, so I think she'll be just fine. Very, uh... Very strong. There's, there's the mom endorsement. Well, thank you for uh, for talking with us. This was fun. Oh, thanks for calling. Bye, mom. Bye. I want to say also, my mom uh, took in my dog Hartford when I'm traveling, so we have to say a big thanks to mom for watching Hartford. Aww, mom and dad. Our pleasure. Dad Ron does a lot of Hartford duty as well. Okay, mom. Have a good day at work. Love you. Love you. Bye bye. Bye. Call your moms, folks. They're always waiting. <laughs> My mom was so nervous, I could tell. She was giving you a lot of stock answers there. She, she wasn't really. She wasn't really opening up. Or she could have been like really cold walking in like five degrees. <laughs> maybe she, maybe she was like negative three degrees. She's like, oh my god, why? <laughs> my mom is from you know she lives in Chicago, yeah. but she's in Florida right now. She oh she got, she got out, out of, of there. Yeah, yeah. You know what? We should just call my mom. Call your mom. I, I think I it's haven't... In, I think it's key that we get the full. The mom experience. Full mom experience. Because our moms are really kind of the reason I think we give ourselves permission to be able to stand on the ledge every night. Mm, Yeah. Because I think having that sort of wall of love behind you to fall back on. Yeah, totally. I don't know. It's moms are one of those characters that you totally take for granted, and then you like get to a certain age, and you realize everything that went into being a mom, and you're like, "Oh my god, you did all of those things! Like, you wiped my butt when I was like tiny, and stayed up all night doing all these things, and then it kind of hits home a little bit. You're like, "Whoa!" You named your dog. After John Hartford? Yes, I did. Would you name a child after a musician that you love? I met a man last night named Guthrie. I was like, damn, that's a cool name for a kid. Yeah. I think that I would. Yeah, I would name my child after a musician if it was like a good name. And if I was 100% sure that a musician wasn't going to get me (laughs) tooed. (laughs) That's a new fear that I have about my musical heroes. Oh, no, yeah. Um, I'm wanting to... There's this tattoo I want to get, which I have drawn on myself. Me tooed. That's an yeah. interesting... That's a that's a pretty intense... That's a good verb. Well, I had that thought after um, this whole situation with Ryan Adams went down because I was just thinking about how many people might have, like, Ryan Adams tattoos or something on yeah. them. And then... That's on you. It is. It is hard when some of your heroes that you loved for most of your life, you know, honestly, people knew about Michael Jackson in some form, but Mm. I think this new documentary is like, can we listen to Thriller Mm. and this stuff with the same amount of sort of blind joy as we did before when we know that during that exact time, he was really hurting these young boys and all this stuff, you know? Yeah, it's it's, it's tough. It is a tough thing to, um, because you can't change the fact that you did love that music when you were blissfully ignorant is it possible to separate the art from the artist i don't know i mean i think it's like woody allen films too it's like how do i not sort of love manhattan but also like 
oh, he's so... Maybe you don't have to separate it. Maybe you can just say that this is a great piece of art made by a really terrible person, and that is also mm. part of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think for me, like, in listening to Ryan Adams' songs, like, I'm not actually surprised mm. by his actions very much because I didn't consider him to be a very healthy character you know just from his artwork so I don't know if I don't know if you need to separate it I don't know if it's possible to separate but I don't think that means that you have to pretend it's not good quality artwork but for me it maybe changes the way that I would support that person I mean you've been making music since you were a young lady you know Mm. you're still young but I'm saying is that like do you feel like you've had to be on your guard for people with bad behavior all yes. the time. Yes, definitely. Um, it's something that I think about a lot, and it's something that has been a big part of my professional career, yeah. for sure. Um, I think I had some experiences very early on that kind of helped me understand that. I think I've always been sort of um, skeptical had had a healthy level of skepticism about people in and kind of a good sense of um gut feeling but it I mean I did definitely get myself into some bad situations um or situations that were really unhealthy in trying to chase a dream and mm. I think that it's very easy to when you do have something to offer someone you know, especially in the art world because it's so interpersonal. Like mm. a relationship with someone through music can be really easily confused with a romantic relationship mm. or it can actually be a romantic relationship. And if you're in a position where you have something to offer someone as like an older male and you're interested in someone and it's hard, I, I can imagine that it would be hard not to use that even unconsciously. You know, not realize what you're doing. And um, I was definitely, like, in that situation as, like, a young teenager. And I think that going through that whole experience and kind of learning that that was not, I mean... Like, things were dangled as, like, if you... Well, I thought that I was in love with someone and I Mm. kind of knew that I wasn't. Mm. But I wanted so badly to have that life, you know, to, to be a musician. And I was 17 and I didn't know what how to do that. There was no path laid out for me. It just felt, felt so out of reach. So, you know, I kind of allowed myself to get into this whole situation. And, um, I think it was kind of good because by the time I got out of it, I just totally understood what that was and was able to recognize it all the time moving forward. And it doesn't mean it hasn't affected my professional life, but I've been really able to see it very clearly in my personal relationships. You know, there was a, a post I saw from a band that I, I like. Um, oh, yeah, uh, Reverend Peyton and his mm. big damn band. His wife, Breezy, is like sings with him, plays mm. washboard and percussion. And they had this thread about sound guys not ever listening to when she wanted something changed mm. or you yeah. know, altered, mm-hmm. but they would listen if her husband said it, mm-hmm. you know? And it was like they would tune her out and wait for the guy to like give mm-hmm. them instructions. Yeah. You know, it's like, 
one of the worst. How is that still fucking happening? Oh, one of actually not to hate on your town, but one of the worst sound person experiences I've had was in L.A. when I was opening for Mandolin Orange. Um, this the uh, sound engineer at the theater we were playing at, which wasn't their sound engineer, it was the house guy, was just. Oh, he made me so mad. I was, I didn't realize it was time to sound check and, um, because like something, the schedule was different. And, and so anyway, they had to, the crew has to take a dinner break before the show. And, and so I was like, Oh, um, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize it was time to sound check. So I'm just going to go find my band and we'll be right back. Cause I thought we were doing it in half an hour or whatever. And he, and then he was like, He's like, we got a sound check. We got a sound check. You know, getting all cranky. And I was like, okay, okay. So I gather the band. I'm like, look, I'm really sorry. And he's like, oh, sweetheart, I didn't mean to upset you. Are you okay? Like real condescending. Not at all like genuine, you know? And, yeah. I, and I was like, already seething, okay? And then I pull out my Edwina ear trumpet microphone, which we have used successfully for every show right. on that tour up to that particular one in big theaters, like Thalia Hall, you know, giant theaters. And he's like that's not going to work. That's not going to work. And I was like, it will work. This is a quiet crowd. Mm-hmm. Just please use it. And then he's like, got the gain all the way up. I'm like, can you please turn the gain down? It'll work way better. He's like, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. I'm like, can you just try it? Because it will work. You know, like just this yeah. whole thing inside who plays guitar with me just turned me and he's like, he would never treat me like this. Like, you know, this is just complete bullshit. And I was like, yeah, I know. You know, and it, and it worked. The microphone magically worked. It was fine. Like, it's just so frustrating. But that's kind of the least of it. You know, those kind of interactions are in the moment and they're frustrating, but they're not those long-term kind of harmful, toxic things that, that will kind of ruin a career and make you want to stop playing music. I honestly wish they were more lady sound people because yeah. they're, whenever, like, the blue moon where it happens, mm-hmm. they're usually like way better at their yeah. job. I think yeah. they probably are because they have to be yeah. better to get anywhere. Like they're going to have to really prove, prove themselves. And it's, it's starting to happen a little bit more. I've noticed. Andrew Marlin from Mandolin Orange mm-hmm. produced the no shame record. Yeah. Right? What was it like working with him? It was really amazing. Andrew's, um, Andrew's a really kind of freaky talent. He's got a lot of intuition, and I think, if, kind of for better or for worse, we have a similar style of working together, which was really, really great artistically, um, because it's all about trying things, feeling them out, and then you know deciding yes or no, and, and just kind of making a call from your instinct and then going with it. So there wasn't this huge kind of like charted out plan and it was much, much more um, kind of loose than that, which was appropriate to the project because I really didn't have a big plan about what we were going to do with these songs. It was just sort of something I wanted to explore artistically. Is No Shame sort of the almost like a concept album in a way? Well, it's called Shame. Sorry, Shame. And so No Shame is kind of the tagline that I use to be like, well, this is actually what I'm trying to say. But... um, yeah, I, I think it sort of became it sort of became the attitude behind the project. And it's not that every song is about shame, but there is quite a few songs about um being a female and kind of the societal repercussions of that. 
um, the experience of that. Um, and then there's other songs that are just, you know, love songs or breakup songs or like Never Tired the Road, which is kind of like a labor song or like a um, Power of the People song to me. Um, but the whole thing kind of has a spirit of fearlessness for me. And it was kind of a moment in my life where I was deciding to be fearless and kind of stepping out on my own and putting these um, songs out there, some of which were harder to sing than others in terms of the subject matter. So that's kind of the whole spirit that I wanted to embody behind it. And then shame is just sort of a really important concept, I think, for women. I think it's something that that really women deal with in so many different ways um, and something that is really empowering to tackle. And I think that song touches on sort of this hypocrisy of, of people who are holier than thou mm-hmm. <clears throat> in a church and mm-hmm. that are very, uh, you know, patriarchal and mm-hmm. uh, that sort of the idea of, um, that you state in this, this lyric, any man can own the right to do as he pleases and any man can walk away from the love he wants to leave. There, I'll be left standing with a child in a dream so I will find my own way to triumphant jubilee. Mm. What, is, what does that triumphant jubilee mean to you? Um, to me, that's sort of a m- metaphorical demonstration of a concept of heaven. So the idea that in a lot of religious institutions they're kind of dangling this better world that is at the end of this long road if you do everything right. And since I'm not a religious person and I don't really believe in heaven or hell, and I think that a lot of religious people also kind of have a more um, nuanced idea of what that actually means. And so the idea of that line is that you could find your own way to heaven in terms of building the life that you actually want, Mm. you know, and, and not being bogged down by someone telling you that if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you're going to go to hell after you die. Or, Mm. you know, you might be existing in a certain type of hell where, you know, you might, yeah, you might be in hell already because people are making you feel so bad about your choices and your decisions and kind of not allowing you to flourish as a, human being you started a thing called folk fights back yeah right uh i feel like yeah as a lot of us have become more much more politically aware and um are inundated with information about the discrepancies of our country you know Mm -hmm. there can feel like this sense of helplessness where we're out trying to further our careers, mm-hmm. sitting in vans all day. Yeah. Like, how are we really helping, mm. you know, sometimes? So tell me what this uh, Folk Fights Back thing is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I was feeling and a lot of musicians were feeling after the uh, most recent presidential election. What can we do? How can we channel this anger and this, um, this energy? And... Um, I really felt I was talking to my friend Caitlin Rates and Lily Henley, who are two friends that co-founded Folk Fights Back with me. And one of the things we felt was really wasn't being discussed in the kind of shitstorm that was that election campaign was global warming. And it's something that is so 
outside of politics, you know, it's like this is such an issue for everybody and it doesn't matter what you think, it's happening. And, you know, like... And you have a president who's actively not, promoting it as yeah, a hoax. and it's not being tackled. So, um, you know, so that was kind of the impetus. We're like, we need to do a, a fundraiser. We're going to put this money towards environmental causes and try to just just do something, you know, throw our little penny in the wishing well. Like, we got to do something with this anger and this anxiety that we're feeling. And that really helped me. It really helped me feel better to have something active that I could work on rather than just scrolling through the news, getting angry. And so that's kind of become a mantra of mine. It's like, I'm not going to spend a lot of time discussing politics unless we're discussing something active that we can do about it. Because it's like a mental health issue for me. And um, I try to stay aware of the news, but I don't like I don't go deep into online arguments or like I really try to avoid any kind of comments, comment threads on anything. Like I just it's to me, it's just like you drowned in a sea of anger and anxiety and you don't actually do anything productive to help. So Vogue Fights Back um, is a really great avenue for that. We did about six different um, benefit shows for different causes and one of the cool things is we had shows all over the country and they would contribute money to a local nonprofit. Mm. And um this past year I've been thinking a lot about trying to rechannel energy towards um campaigns because I think that although nonprofits are extremely important, it's really hard to do anything without political change. So um since we have more of an opportunity for that now, like we had the midterms and now it's kind of leading towards the presidential race. Um, I've been kind of trying to rechannel my energy towards those things. That's a little bit not, it's something we actively decided not to do with Folk Fights Back because we didn't want it to be mm-hmm. political. It's political, but it's not specifically political. Mm-hmm. Folk Fights Back isn't the Democratic campaign promoter. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's it's more about the issues at hand. Mm-hmm. So, Well, something like, Climate change should not be a Democrat or exactly. Republican issue. Exactly. And we really wanted to preserve that. Yeah. You know, like anyone can be a supporter of the, um, you know, environmental law center or whatever. It doesn't matter your political affiliation. Let's talk about the important things in life. Okay. Like if you threw a music festival on your front lawn yes. here in Nashville, first five people you would book, dead or alive. Oh, Anybody dead or alive. Yeah. Okay. You know, for one day you could bring them all back somehow. Okay. Well, I definitely have John Hartford. It would be awesome on my front lawn because his house is two doors down from mine. So oh, wow. it would be, we could probably just have it at his house. That would be awesome. Um, I would book Courtney Barnett, who's like one of my favorite current artists. These are people that have really kind of changed my idea of what it means to have a musical voice. So how has she, uh, inspired you? Um, well, I... She's Australian, right? She's Australian. Yeah. I did not think that I understood rock and roll. Um, Courtney Barnett makes me understand rock and roll, and I think... What does rock and roll really mean? I think it means... Like a rebellious spirit or something? Or like, I think it means giving no fucks. Am I allowed to say that on the podcast? Please, please I think do. it means giving no fucks in your expression and I think you can be rock and roll in a lot of genres. Mm. You know what I mean? I think it's like 
I grew up in this musical world of a lot of technique and a lot of striving for perfection, which is very valuable when you're learning to play an instrument. But I think there's a big difference between, you know, it's your art and your craft. So first you have to learn your craft, Mm -hmm. which is how do I actually play my instrument? How do I sing? You Mm -hmm. know, how do I construct a song? And then you learn your art, which is like, what do I personally actually have to say? And what do I want to express? And Courtney Barnett and John Hartford are both people that kind of made me understand what that actually means because Mm -hmm. they both have such um, personal um, perspectives and outlooks and their writing style is so unique and amazing and they're totally different sound, but just they kind of have a similar vibe to me in that they're a little bit messy, Mm -hmm. um, very edgy, um, and they just, they don't give a fuck. They are who they are. And that's the music they're going to make. And whether you like it or not, and you're going to like it because it's so obviously. Well, I think they them. both also have kind of a, a sense of humor too about. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good just point. That's what a I really love about point. John Prine. Yes. It's like, totally. He's sort of saying very deep, important shit with a smile. Yeah. So you're kind of like humming along, you know, mm-hmm. blow up your TV. Yeah. You know. You're totally right about that. And I think Throw that out your paper. something and, about that is like, like not, not taking yeah. yourself so seriously right. that someone can't relate to it. Or, and honestly, Bob Dylan did that. And Woody Guthrie yeah. did that. It's like yeah. sort of making, uh, sort of uh, protesting the man a thing that is fun to do mm-hmm. almost. You know, that it's not like this slog, you know. Totally. And on that note, I think that's something that's really important to me with protest music, because I think that what happened is we had this era of amazing protest music. And then it became this thing that like, you know, old white people did in these sort of isolated pockets in a way that wasn't necessarily fun or relatable to the people that they were actually trying to protest on behalf of. If that makes sense. It it kind of became this like ivory tower thing. Mm. And um, I think that there's a way to do protest music that feels more fun and feels like something that's energizing instead of something that's depressing. Mm. Um, And that's something I think about a lot because I do want to, I do have that spirit in me and I have trouble leaving it behind. I mean, I don't want to leave it behind, but I also really want people to feel that they're going to a show to like have fun and be uplifted and be inspired and not to be depressed about the state of the world. I don't want them to feel like they're listening to NPR when they're at my show. I love NPR, but sometimes <laughs> yeah. I don't want to listen to it if I'm having a drink on a Saturday night. You know what I mean? What is, uh, what do you think is the most underrated music town right now that you love playing in? Um, oh, that's a really good question. Underrated music town. I mean, I don't know if it's underrated, but, um, Durham, North Carolina mm. is an amazing music town. Um, I've been really, you know, I spent a lot of time there recording and I went there specifically because of all the great music I felt was coming out of it. And I've had amazing experience playing there. Mm. It's the first place What's that... What's the venue that you like playing there? The Pinhook. Pinhook. It's the first place that I went to play where people 
came out to the show and knew the songs and sang along. And mm. I, like, I really had my first moment of like, oh my God, you know, like people know my music that I don't know. Um, in Durham, in it's just the bands that come out of there get so much support. People who are from North Carolina go to their shows all over the country because mm. um, it's a really great music town. And the other place that I'm really excited about is Melbourne. I love a lot of music that's coming out of Melbourne, Australia right now. And I think it's like one of the most exciting. Like You did a tour in Australia? I've done several tours in Australia, but also just because I've spent a lot of time there um, because... George lived there for 10 years. I know a lot of people in that scene. Um, obviously, you know, Courtney Barnett is from that scene, but also Opep, which is one of my favorite bands, and Angie McMahon, and um, The Matrio, and Dan Parsons, and Jordy and Lane. Lane. You know, there's just, it's an incredible scene, and there's so many female um, drummers and um, lead, mm. lead guitar players and um, great singer-songwriters, and yeah, so it's pretty cool. Are they a little bit more liberated down there, down under? I don't think as a whole, but mm. I think in that town. Mm. I mean, I think Australia has a lot of the same problems that we have. Mm. Um, they just legalized same-sex marriage. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, like within the last year, it still wasn't legal. So um, I wouldn't say they're more liberated. I think they have a lot of issues. They have a lot of immigrant issues. Mm. But Melbourne is extremely um, woke, an extremely mm. hip place. And I think people, I find that the gender dynamics are much better there than they are here in my personal anecdotal experience. I think the other town that I've been really loving is uh, Bozeman, Montana. Ooh, I love Bozeman. I've only played there once, but I want to go back. I mean, it's just beautiful. like people losing their minds, mm. like feeling it, like rocking out with us. Awesome. You know, and I feel like as an audience member, yeah, as a musician... I have lo- sort of lost the ability to get that excited sometimes for, totally. for music, you know, yeah. that it's like a, a high that can't ever be replicated because you are making the music exactly. and getting that high, yeah. you know, because that yeah. is the biggest high there is. Yeah. If there's a, a room that's filled for you mm-hmm. and they're singing your songs and the sound is good, yeah. that is heaven on earth. Yeah, you I know? agree. That is the best there is. Mm-hmm. And then it feels like hell on earth. When it's half empty and people are waiting for you to finish. It's a hard one. But there is that feeling when I see other bands that I find myself being that person crossing my arms and being like, Mm -hmm. this isn't this isn't really great Mm -hmm. tonight. And I'm like, why do I have to be that guy that I don't like having in the audience? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like anything in life. The more critical you are of other people, the more critical you are of yourself and so the when you stop judging that's like a big thing about people if you have like bad body image like if you just allow other people to be beautiful no matter what you will also allow yourself to be beautiful no matter what the problem is I think for us as artists we don't want to be beautiful no matter what we want to be the absolute best that we can be which means that we're also going to have that standard for other people and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing as long as we are also open to the fact that we can improve and that if you see someone really making an effort and they're not getting it yet, knowing that they might still really get great at a certain point or they might have a great show next time, same as yourself. Like you have a bad show instead of going, I quit, you're going, yeah, that wasn't great. Let's uh, improve on that for next time, you know? All right, I want to do a little creative exercise. Okay. First thing that comes to your mind when I say hellbent. Um, driving a 
a pickup truck down a desert road really fast, um, screaming out the window, high on some sort of substance. Is this something that you've done? No, but you know, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a fancy a dream. What's that um, crazy book about doing drugs and going to Las Vegas? Really Fear famous. and Loathing. Yeah, I feel like there was a, a movie of that which I saw. That's kind of what I imagine. Like Mad Max style? Where they're like driving to Las Vegas with like the, they're like taking all the drugs and they pick up that hitchhiker and I think he's real freaked out because he doesn't know what he got himself into. When I moved from Chicago to LA, I drove in my 1997 Saab hatchback with everything Mm. I owned and the air conditioning went out outside of Vegas in June. So you were It was 105. (laughs) We had the windows all the way down like... Trying to get to a hotel with yeah. air conditioning, yeah. just like screaming, like please let this stop. <laughs> I did a couple summers in Nashville with a car with no AC. Um, that was a little rough. All right, when I say warm embrace, well, I think of a hug. Is it... whose hug? Well, right now I'm thinking of giving you a hug, Zach. Oh me? Yeah. yeah. How about when I say Harry? Harry. Ooh. I mean, like, like what specific hairy thing do I think about? What, what comes to your mind? Well, um, gross pubic hair comes to mind. Also, my dog Harford, who sheds a lot. Also, I just got some um, chairs on Craigslist yesterday, and they had those kind of sticky pads on the bottom that kind of help with scratching the floor. And this person had a dog and it was so nasty. Like those things were just like wads of disgusting old hair. So I like scraped them off with a knife and I was really satisfied to get rid of them. When I say necking. Necking. I feel like that makes me think of like drive-in movies, like vintage style makeout sessions in the car. Who's your first kiss? Well, I had this boyfriend in junior high school and it was so confusing because I was super into him. I had a giant crush on him and he was a friend of my best friend's boyfriend. So through that, we kind of became, we were going out because I like sent the word. You this know? was like sixth grade, seventh this grade? This was seventh, eighth grade, yeah, eighth okay. grade. And he, so he asked me out like maybe in a note or something Mm -hmm. then we were going out but literally he wouldn't like talk to me or hang out with me or anything and he like never called me which was like a big thing in junior high because like that was really the only thing that you did yeah talking on the phone yeah talking on the phone was like the only thing you do with your boyfriend going out was talking on the phone yeah like you didn't actually really go anywhere but talk on the phone well he never called me and i was so like butthurt about it what did he think going out meant well funny story so i kept being like trying to figure it out and I kept being like do you want to break up and he'd be like no I don't want to break up (laughs) a few years later um well and we had our first kiss at the eighth grade dance and then we went on to do some more kissing which was like also highly confusing because it was like very slobbery and not very enjoyable (laughs) and turns out a few years later he came out as gay and I was like oh this makes so much sense because it was like he didn't want to break up he didn't (laughs) want to do anything it was like a weird purgatory so I had several gay boyfriends and one time I talked to my brother about it 
um, cause I was always dating musicians and I was like, what is wrong with me? Why do I have all these gay boyfriends? And my brother goes, well, Rachel, you're swimming in a, in a very unique pond. There's a lot of rainbow trout. <laughs> I was like <laughs> rainbow trout. <laughs> laughing a lot about that. Anyway. I mean, I remember it was my, one of my friends' stepsister mm. they lived like down the street, you know, down the block or so. And she was like from the rich girl school. Ooh. And Which school is that? New Trier? <laughs> Parker. Oh. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and she was very advanced in oh. seventh grade. She like. She was like a she, bad rich girl. Yeah. And she was like in total control where she just like decided like, I'm going to make this kid my project. Gotcha. You know? Lucky you. And we're like, you know, we made out during ti- watching Titanic in the basement on VHS. And then nothing happened. We like made out or whatever. And then she called me a week later. And she's like, it's our one week anniversary. <laughs> I was like, it is? You know? And she's like, she's like, I know what our song is. I was like, you do? You know? All right, we'll go on. No, she's like. One week from Bare Naked Ladies <laughs> is our song. And I was like, what song is that? Like, I was like totally unaware of what the song was. And I had to look it up, you know, on my AOL dial up. Oh, you yeah, know. I had AOL. And I was like, oh, this song is cool. Like, she's cool, you know? So, did you guys have like a long romance? No, but uh, my mom forbade me. Oh. To see her after a little bit because she she knew she, was she knew my mom like knew everything yeah. before it ever happened and she was like this girl is trouble and I was like <laughs> exactly <laughs> on that note it's important that we get my oh, yeah. mom on the phone yes. because I promised her for like two minutes because she can weigh in. Let me hear about. Dialing Florida. Hello. Hi, hon. Hi, Zach's mom. This, oh, who's this? <laughs> this is Rachel Bayman. You're on um, the show on the road. Oh my god. We're doing okay. a new we're doing a new segment called uh, Call Mom because right. musicians on the road don't call their moms enough. They and, really don't. <laughs> and you have very good insight on what makes us who we are. You know. We were just talking about Zach's first girlfriend, the neighbor who was uh, trouble. This, yeah, the, <laughs> it was the one time you forbade me from seeing someone. Oh yes, I was very, very on top of it. <laughs> she, because she was trying to be on top of him. Oh, spicy. I mean, eventually, like, how how do you, as a mom, decide to let your child, you know, grow up a bit, but not grow up too fast? Well, I remember the um, the way I went was trying to teach you as much respectful behavior towards others. Treating a woman or a young girl with respect was really important to me. And that if you rush things too quickly, you bypass some very important um, step stages in your awakening. And so I didn't want you to go too fast because then you would have not had all those early beginnings that are so wonderful so in terms of setting those limits um i just felt like we your parents had to be the guideposts not you because you were too young 
I feel like we're having the talk right now. <laughs> Very young, you know. When he got more mature, then he treated himself and others more maturely, and then I could back off. Do you feel like, uh, as a parent, you had to be sort of uh, strict but not too strict to allow your artistic-minded son to experiment? Yeah, you had to really... I had to really instill in you and, and myself that I trusted you because that would have been horrible otherwise. So I, I just... I don't think I was too strict, but I just had an envelope that you couldn't, you know, it had to stay within that. What was the first music you remember playing for me when I was a kid? Oh, we had this amazing Disney, believe it or not, um, montage of every single little ditty you can imagine. So there was Oh My Darling, Clementine, those kind of songs, and you just would sing them from the top of your head and um it was a joy it was just complete joy for you from the beginning with that kind of music and then there was uh what was the one uh angel it was a very very spiritual kind of stuff that was kind of cutesy and sugar beats was another one uh i can't, I can't remember the, the metaphysical one it was really very pretty i remember there being uh bomber angels that's what it was bomber angel so trying to teach you some music. And you definitely stayed listening to cassette tapes only for many years. All the time, yes. If mm. I could, I'd still be listening to it, yes. That's your preferred medium? That is, because I can, you know, I don't necessarily think that the whole uh, digital and internet thing is good for my brain. It's overstimulating. But you prefer cassettes to like a CD yeah. or a record? Because she's so unhip, she's hip. Oh. That's what I'm saying. She is. Yeah, I, I probably would like records too, but I'd be jumping around and I'd make them skip too much. Yeah. I mean, I love records, but they are a little bit high maintenance. So the cassettes, I could play back. I could control it a little bit more. And I don't think I was buzzing my brain as much. I think that you're definitely the side of my brain that's the folk mind you know because you were playing a lot of cat stevens mm. and simon garfunkel and carol king and yeah and you know, and yeah simon garfunkel dad was a little more of the harder stuff you know the blues oh, he was and rock and roll much more, he was much more expanded i was thinking about my my um interest in music was usually just to keep my heart open and to transform whatever darkness i might have had into light so music for me was was that and so even even when I hear Zach's songs, they bring joy. Then that, then I'll listen to it. Aww. Especially if they're the minor key songs about assisted suicide, you know. Yeah, well, I do like those too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it here, folks. That's my mom, Betsy Lupitan, live from St. Petersburg Beach, Florida. Bye, mom. Thanks for including me. <laughs> Love my boy. Take care. Bye, bye. That's cute. Well, I think uh, I think we should play a song, possibly. Yeah. Um, what do you What do you have in mind? Well, I was thinking about playing Thanksgiving because that's um, that is the the newest release. The newest release, and it's also a nice one to do as a solo. You know. Tell situation. me, tell me a little bit about the song before we play it. So, um, I started writing the song a 
couple years ago, around Thanksgiving time, there was a big uh, protest going on about the Dakota Access Pipeline, as mm. you might recall. And um, Obama was still the president at this time. And I he eventually did... Um, issue, you know, an injunction on the, the pipeline, which then got immediately overturned when Trump came into office. But at the time, he hadn't really done anything about it. And there, the protest was going on and on and on. And there was starting to be all this like military brought in. And then I think it was like right around Thanksgiving, they issued this thing of like the protesters, you ha- you have to go like we're issuing a military injunction or I don't know what whatever it was called, but they were like going to shut down the protest. And because of that protest, you know, I was thinking a lot about the relationship between Native Americans and white settlers in this country historically and to the present day. And honestly, I mean, to my shame, it's not something that I thought about a lot growing up just because in Chicago, you ha- we had very little representation of Native American people. And those cultures have been so, you know, destroyed by um, by colonization that it's just like, I don't know, it's not something I thought a lot about, and I was thinking a lot about it during that time and how ironic it was to be celebrating this Thanksgiving holiday, which is supposed to be about the friendship between the, you know, colonial settlers. Yeah, and one the, of the many uh, wrong-headed myths that have been yeah told for so many years in our culture. Yeah, and it's something... Well, actually, I grew up knowing that my 10th, great grandfather came over on the Mayflower Mm. on my mom's side. Um, and his name was elder Brewster. And that's something that as a kid I thought was so cool and I was really proud of, and it's still like an interesting historical thing, but having kind of a new lens on that whole situation and realizing that some bad shit probably went down. And, um, anyway, so yeah, that's kind of what inspired me to write Thanksgiving. It's a song about, you know, what that holiday means today, what that holiday meant at the time, like, what our, as white people, our relationship is um, to Native American rights and indigenous rights on on this land and, and all that stuff, so. Very good. Elder Brewster would be a pretty epic band name. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
there you have it, the one and only Rachel Bayman. You can find her music and her tour dates at rachelbayman.com. Her newest EP is called Thanksgiving, and her full length is called Shane, which was produced by Andrew Marlin of Mandolin Orange. Speaking of Mandolin Orange, they were on this very show. You can go to the bluegrasssituation.com, click on podcasts and show on the road to see our archives and all the previous episodes. And even better, go to iTunes and subscribe and tell a friend. Folks, if you happen to be in Nashville on May 9th, you can see three bands that I love who have all been on this show, Front Country, Lindsay Lou, and Rachel Bayman, live at the High Watt. That's May 9th. Don't miss it. It's going to be dope. For you festival goers, my band Dust Bowl Revival will be playing a free fest April 27th in South Pasadena. It's called The Eclectic. And if you're going to the Bender Jamboree in Vegas this weekend, I will see you there as well. The show on the road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love the show on the road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends. The show on the road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lubiton. See you on the trail.